Good morning, everyone. Um, Happy New Year to all of you who are joining us for this Grand Rounds. Uh, we had a two-week break. Hopefully, uh, you got your energy back and you're re-energized to begin uh, with 2021. Uh, I know it's going to be a, a tough next three months, for sure, uh, because of COVID-19. Uh, we have uh, uh, surpassed 350,000 deaths here in the United States of America and uh, approaching 2 million deaths worldwide from this pandemic, which has over 80 million cases worldwide and uh, over 20, almost 21 million cases here in the U.S. Uh, so it's it's really remarkable. And, and so these will be very tough times over the next two to three months for our country. And uh, we have to hang in there, you know, work together, uh, move forward, be optimistic that we will get through uh, March, April, and that the summer will come and summer will be a far better place. Vaccines are now available. Uh, we, we have been vaccinated here at Connecticut Children's now uh, since uh, uh, mid-December, actually a little bit late December. Uh, I was very lucky yesterday that I was able to get my second dose of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Arm is a little bit sore, but no other side effects. I encourage all of you who are healthcare team members to get vaccinated. Um, all our team members at Connecticut Children's uh, have either direct or indirect patient contact have been asked to participate. It is voluntary, but I'm encouraging all of you to, uh, to, to log in. If you're not a member of Connecticut Children's, but you're part of our CIN, our clinically integrated network, and you're either a physician, PA, PRN, uh, or a staff member within those practices, you are eligible to be vaccinated within Connecticut Children's. So please contact us, let us know, and we'll get you loaded up on the on our website through the VAM CDC website. You'll get an email, uh, and then you'll be uh, invited to participate here through Connecticut Children's. So please make use of that. The vaccine is available, and it's, uh, it is life-saving in my opinion. So you should be uh, really consider vaccinating as much as you, as you possibly can. Uh, uh, there are some side effects uh, that are really minimal. Again, as I said, a little bit of soreness in my arm. That's about it for the second dose. There was some concern that the second dose would get you very sick. Not really. It is not doing that. Uh, now, some people do get allergic reactions, and if that happens, we are able to manage it. So again, my message today is be careful in the next two to three months. Be optimistic, get vaccinated, and we'll get through this. Uh, that, that's the message. Now, uh, this week is, is uh, team member engagement. Uh, week. Uh, this is uh, where uh, all of us here at Connecticut Children's want to thank all of you for everything that you do. And just to re be reminded of, of the great and excellent work of all areas of Connecticut Children's and its affiliates. Uh, thank you for, for being such a, a tremendous force behind this. This was a tough year in 2020, uh, hard in 2021, but without you, we wouldn't be able to do it. So again, thank you. Uh, for all of you who are leaders, please make sure that you connect with your folks uh, in each of your areas, either here in the main campus or the or satellite campuses. And, uh, and, you know, you can't hug anyone right now because of COVID rules, but you can certainly uh, do a, you know, a high five from above or, you know, a little, you know, hug the shoulders. There are many ways you can do this and, and express your appreciation to everyone, either on Zoom or directly. So with that, I, uh, we do have a fantastic Grand Round speaker today. Uh, Dr. Adelheid was able to invite. Uh, he is joining us from... Uh, uh, from Pittsburgh, where he is a faculty member. Uh, and to introduce him, we have our own superstar, Dr. Barbara Edelheit, uh, who is the chief of our division of rheumatology. She's been at it for over a year now, doing a tremendous job uh, and really moving that division forward. I was looking at numbers yesterday, the number of people they're seeing. Uh, it's growing uh, in, in leaps and bounds. Uh, they, we're now located, as you probably may not know, in Massachusetts, 
Um, Barb goes there and uh, the number of patients that are joining us there is tremendous. Uh, we're also in, in Danbury, we're down in Southern Connecticut here throughout obviously all of the Central Connecticut area and growing. And hopefully in a two, three, four years, Barb will be actually setting up shop in parts of New York and other places. Uh, so I'm very honored that you know she uh, uh, took on the directorship role of the Division of Rheumatology and she's doing just a fantastic job. Uh, and I'm really, really excited of the things that are gonna come forward as a result of her leadership. Now, uh, without further ado, I'm gonna ask you to come up here and introduce Dr. Khanna, uh, and then we'll move on to our grand rounds. Barb? Thank you, Juan. Um, hi, everyone, and Happy New Year. Um, I have the distinct pleasure of welcoming you to what is sure to be an amazing start to our 2021 grand rounds. Juan, I do have to warn you, uh, we're setting the bar very high with starting by starting with Dr. Scott Khanna. I had to laugh at the name of Scott's talk, Highway to Hell, because when one looks at the length of Scott's CV and this nod to a band from the 70s, one gets the sense that Dr. Kanna is going to be much older than he is. But make no mistake, he may not even been born when ACDC was at their peak, but he has accomplished a great deal. As my good friend from fellowship, who now works with Scott in Pittsburgh, describes him, he is brilliant and yet truly humble. She also calls him the Ferritin King, and I gather we will learn why during today's talk. Dr. Kanna is one of the most sought after speakers in our field in autoinflammatory research, and he has been awarded multiple RO1 and other NIH federal grants. Listing his publications, book chapters, and awards would take most of the time we have, so I will be brief. Dr. Kanna has been working as a pediatric rheumatologist at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh since 2016. He attended medical school at GW University. He did his residency in pediatrics at Colorado Children's Hospital in Denver and his fellowship in pediatric rheumatology at CHOP. He did a prolonged postdoc at the NIH and he now runs an NIH funded research program studying the genetic and molecular origins of cytokine storm syndromes. He has published extensively in the field of immune dysregulation, cytokine storm, MAS, and now MISC. And we are so grateful to have Dr. Kanna here virtually to share his knowledge with us. Wow, thank you. Um, that was uh, <laughs> a lot to live up to. Um, thanks everyone for tuning in and thank you, uh, uh, Dr. Salazar and Dr. Edelheit for um, the, the invitation. Um, let me share my screen, stand by. All right, so we'll jump right in. Okay, um, hopefully everyone can see and hear me okay. Um, Great, so you've heard the title of the talk. I'm Scott Kenna, thank you very much. Um, disclosures, uh, nothing really relevant to this talk. I do a little bit of consulting, certainly not uh, for any substantial amount of money. Um, okay, so they wanted us to go over some learning objectives. Uh, and I feel like everything I've learned about this topic has really not come from me, but has come from trying to keep up with some of the patients that, that we've encountered over the years. Uh, with success and, and often without. Um, so, you know, there's so many terms that are enmeshed into this, this thing called cytokine storm that I, I kind of 
one of the objectives is just to convey a sense of how these things interact, overlap, and, and what they actually mean and what they're actually useful for. So maybe, maybe we'll get there. Um, you know, we'll talk about some of the infections and drugs that are associated with hyperinflammation. Uh, and we'll talk about some of the host susceptibility factors that predispose. So cytokine storm is not new, right? Sepsis is an ancient term uh, coming from the Greek for rotten or putrid. And in fact, Hippocrates was calling out cytokine storm, you know, thousands of years ago uh, in reference to a local lesion heated by humors and afflux makes the whole body feverish. Uh, and this can cause death, especially on odd numbers days. Today being the fifth is an auspicious day. Um, now, the problem is that the, the definitions have been uh, a bit all over the map and not always useful. So this is how Oxford English defines sepsis. Uh, presence in tissues of harmful bacteria and their toxins, typically through infection or blood. And this is just wrong, right? Because the sepsis is really the body's overwhelming and life-threatening response to infection. Uh, an ear infection is not sepsis. Uh, you know, uh, a hangnail that gets infected is not sepsis. It could potentially become so. But really, when we talk about sepsis, we're talking about the, the systemic response to, in this case, infection. And so we understand now that there's this continuum of influences to sepsis. There's the host response, and there's environmental factors, uh, certainly including and, and most commonly infections. And so I thought I'd start with an illustrative story. So this was um, uh, a patient that really sort of launched my interest into this. So this is a, a little five-year-old guy here, uh, picture, you know, with permission from his family, of course, um, who presented like many of the patients you all have seen before with high fever, low cell counts really across all three cell lines, some abnormal clotting, um, you know, with really high D-dimers and a little bit depressed fibrinogen, some hepatitis, but not certainly anything that would suggest liver failure. And of course, a ferritin in the, the skyrocketing high range. Uh, he was quite shocky when he came in, uh, eventually requiring VA ECMO for a little while. And sort of this spectrum of, of manifestations goes by a lot of names. I think that one of the reasonable ones is hyperinflammation. You know, it's, it's more than just some inflammation, it's hyperinflammation um, and can certainly result in organ failure and shock. So, you know, did, did he have sepsis? Well, of course, that's sort of our, our first uh, line of concern. His cultures were negative. Respiratory viral panels were negative. EBV, CMV, and a host of other viral uh, studies were all negative. And so, you know, we were looking for an etiology in him. Uh, and after a really long course of, of functional and genetic testing, we really came up with nothing. Um, despite some heroic efforts, the systemic inflammation persisted. Uh, re, you know, as you can imagine, multiple, multiple very high dose steroids, plasma exchange, IVIG, cyclosporin, etoposide, you know, practically all these things, uh, including his shock was severe enough to cause um, some necrosis and he underwent amputation of, of nine fingers in both feet, thinking that this would debride and take away some of the damage associated uh, pro-inflammatory factors. And, and this is something that his, his mother uh, put on their website um, that I think is really powerful. So I'll give you a second. So this is one of the failures that continues to, to compel me to do what I do because we weren't able to do enough for this really wonderful family and this really wonderful child. Uh, he eventually lost his life, not necessarily to cytokine storm, but to a, a really horrible invasive fungal infection because of, of the medicines we had tried to give him. So we need to do better. And how can we do better? Well, 
you know, I think from the microbial side, the ID folks are really pulling their weight here. We have vaccinations and, and we just talked about, you know, in, in less than a year, we have a variety of different highly effective and very safe uh, SARS-CoV-2 vaccines. Uh, we have really great wound care. We have a host of antimicrobials. Uh, and in the ICU, we have excellent sort of organ supportive care. And then we have a bunch of immunologists who, who, who are really come up with nothing. And of course that's not for, for want of trying. Uh, it's simply that the situation is much more complex than, than we thought you know, 20 years ago. And so the state of the art in 2019 is still that you know, we don't really address the host response, uh, particularly the inflammation and immune factors when we're dealing with cytokine storms. So how can we do better? Well, I think we can provide better inflammatory supportive care. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, certainly better and earlier diagnostics, particularly of the host response. Uh, and of course, more targeted and less toxic treatments. So now I'm going to be guided by another little girl who uh, has taught us quite a lot over the years. And so she's gonna show us how. So she presented only three months of life. Uh, again, prolonged fever. She had this sort of nonspecific rash, some low cell counts, clotting, hepatitis, a really high ferritin, shock, uh, this same clinical spectrum that we call hyperinflammation. Um, she also had this severe panenterocolitis. This is her stomach and colon. They're supposed to look histologically different, but they're so infiltrated with inflammation. Um, so, you know, did she have sepsis? Again, all cultures negative. In the very early course before she decompensated, she was parainfluenza positive and then, you know, quickly negative within what we would expect to be a normal time course. And of course, she had these dreaded hemophagocytes on her bone marrow biopsy. And so what should we call her? Well, you know, does she have cytokine storm? I think most people would say yes, but what is that good for? And in a lot of ways, what you call this syndrome depends on who got there first. If you're in the ICU, you might call this culture negative sepsis or viral sepsis or hyperinflammatory sepsis or hyperferritinemic sepsis. I know. Uh, if you're in the hemonc world, this is very clearly hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis or HLH. And if you're a rheumatologist like me, you might say, well, this could be macrophage activation syndrome, which is, depending on your perspective, a subtype of HLH. So the nomenclature is a mess, and I'll be the first to agree with that. So perhaps another way, or maybe a better way of looking at this is that the term cytokine storm syndromes is a giant umbrella that by itself just sort of puts you in a ballpark. And so this is an adaptation uh, of a figure we made you know, when the SARS-CoV-2 thing was just coming out before we even really knew about MISC, um, that really showed all the ways in which, you know, there's all these different etiologies and there's some overlap between infection and a bunch of different things, uh, different kinds of infections, viruses, maybe more than bacteria. Uh, and then some diseases that sort of stand out on their own, like multicenter Castleman's, maybe Kawasaki, maybe MISC, and cytokine release syndrome associated with, with treatment of malignancies. Um, and so the way that this is a, a review that I wrote with Randy Cron, uh, the way that we sort of set about this defining cytokine storm as, as useless as it might seem is just basically immunopathology that you want to do something about life or organ threatening systemic inflammation and immunopathology that, that sort of requires attention regardless of, of where it's arising. And so, you know, again, another way of sort of dividing this is looking at a series of concentric circles. And so if, if, you know, nearly every patient in the hospital right now has the systemic inflammatory response syndrome, 
Uh, and it's divided through a, a lot of different ways. You know, many of them are gonna be potentially trauma. This is this compensatory anti-inflammatory response syndrome. So most of them, rather than being hyper-inflammatory, will have a sort of more uh, uh, immunoparalysis phenotype, uh, including many sepsis patients. And then, you know, we're really here in this orange circle of hyperinflammation, which itself is divided into a bunch of different phenotypes and causes. So how can we start to divide all this out? Well, you know, I think that the association with storms is actually a little bit helpful. And if, so you look at the history of storms, uh, as I did, um, it's, it's, it's illustrative. So storms, you know, uh, 200 years ago were thought to be just sort of these acts of God. Uh, and then this guy, Robert Fitzroy, who was actually the captain of the Beagle and, and uh, hung out and, and had a lot of interesting debates with uh, Charles Darwin, was really on about this barometric pressure thing. He thought that we could predict storms with barometric pressure. And he kind of got uh, roundly laughed at. And in the context of you know, these changes in barometric pressure and knowing about the Coriolis effects of where weather come from and using some new technologies like electrical telegraphy, this guy basically set the groundwork for the weather patterns that we use today to predict when storms are coming so we can prepare for them uh, and deal with them appropriately. And so, you know, how can we, or, or you here at Connecticut Children's, you know, uh, integrate this? And so, you know, one is to start with, you know, the substrate, what, what is your host like? What is host susceptibility like? And then you get to reach into your fundamental troves of, of immunology, whether you like it or not, you're all immunologists because you're all giving steroids and other immunomodulators. Uh, and then, you know, using some of the new tests and biomarkers to try to triangulate where you are to ultimately get to better outcomes. So to start with, you know, genetic uh, host susceptibility, I thought we'd start with genetic susceptibility. And, and this is where, you know, uh, some mutants can be very instructive, not to sort of make a joke with no audience, maybe it's falling flat. But nevertheless, um, we can learn uh, quite a lot from some of the mutants. And, and why is that important? Well, one of the ways I conceptualize this is that inflammation is, is puzzling. And so when you put together a puzzle, pretty much all of us, unless we're gluttons, uh, we'll start with the edge pieces. And you start with the edge pieces because they tell you where to start. They, they, they give you a starting point. And in the same way, uh, you know, genetic diagnoses give you a starting point. So, you know, MEFV, you know, is causing the patient's disease, you know, to put it in the edge. And sometimes based on some of the features of that disease, you might put it in association with some other edge pieces that are caused by other genetic diseases. Um, and in this way, sort of give yourself a ballpark to start interpolating things that you're seeing in, in more genetically complex diseases like PFAPA or systemic GIA or, or even sepsis. And so, you know, I think studying monogenic diseases is helpful, both for giving us mechanistic starting points, uh, but also, as we'll see, uh, proof of principle for using targeted therapeutics. So if we know something about these genes, uh, we can start to predict what kinds of therapies might be effective. So to start with one of these genetic diseases, we'll talk about familial HLH. And so in this young lady, we were certainly very concerned about familial HLH. So what is it? So in order to understand familial HLH, you need to understand the immune synapse. And I'm sorry if, if you know, immunology is making everybody sort of either reach for their coffee or sort of nod off. But as I said, you're all immunologists, we're all in this together. And so the immune synapse is something that happens between a T cell, in this case, an activated uh, CD8 T cell 
And let's say an infected cell, maybe this is a macrophage. And so this cell gets infected and it sends up these danger alarm signals and it makes a whole bunch of cytokines that we're used to. And it sends these signals to the T cell, both uh, through the T cell receptor and through cytokine and coactivating receptors. And this all happens at this connection called the immune synapse. And that's all well and good. The T cell says, oh, I get it, there's danger. I'm gonna make my own cytokines that will go and spread this, this danger message. Uh, some of these will act back on you to sort of continue this cycle of inflammation. Um, but at a certain point, the CD8 T cell has to say, I get it. You are infected, there's danger, and I need to shut off this stimulation. And the way that it does that is through um, cytotoxicity. So these are killer T cells. And so they have these killer granules that go in and they kill the infected cell. And the signal to terminate this synapse is actually the death of this, this activated or infected cell. And that you know, is the signal to shut off the synapse and the CDT cell stops making cytokine and goes about its business. So in primary HLH or familial HLH, you have genetic defects that affect the ability to kill. So one of the important killing molecules is called perforin. And the most common cause of familial HLH is deficiency of perforin. But if you have deficiency of these other things that are really important for getting perforin and these granules to that immune synapse, these are all necessary for sort of making or moving these granules, then you will get primary familial HLH. And there's a whole bunch of them and we don't need to go into them here. And the way that you ultimately need to treat these people is to give them a new immune system, to do bone marrow transplant. And even with that, uh, and, and really some heroic clinical research on the part of the Histocyte Society, mortality in these patients is still about 40%. So at the immune synapse of familial HLH, because they lack these killing granules, or at least they're, they're highly ineffective, they can't terminate this immune synapse. So this infected cell stays alive and it continues to give big signals to the T cells. And so the T cells make tons of cytokines and you get cytokines there. Uh, another consequence of this is that this infected cell, it doesn't die the way we want it to. We want it to die by apoptosis, but instead it dies by an inflammatory type of cell death. And there's a number of different kinds, but basically, you know, this is an inflammatory cell death where instead of dying quietly, these cells sort of turn red and explode. And so you can imagine this happening inside the, the body all the time uh, and propagating a lot more inflammation than otherwise would be necessary. So it turns out that when you look for whether cytotoxicity is a mechanism in a whole bunch of hyperinflammatory diseases, you get a little bit of signal. Now, certainly in primary HLH, you know, this is the cause. These patients have, you know, complete loss of function mutations in these genes. But if you look, you can find an enrichment for heterozygous cytotoxicity mutations in, you know, up to a third to a half of affected patients in certain infection-associated HLH, uh, like influenza, uh, in macrophage activation syndrome, like in some of our systemic GA patients. Now, in the audience right now, probably one in five to one in 10 of us have a heterozygous defect in cytotoxicity. So certainly it's not the whole story, but I do believe that there is an enrichment and, and that these heterozygous defects are contributing. Uh, and so this is one of the things that we can sort of conceptually look at when we get these data uh, on patients. Now to head back to our young lady, she kills well. She is an excellent killer. So this is not her mechanism. This is not her problem. 
Now she's got this fever, she's got this rash, she's got this enterocolitis, maybe it's auto-inflammatory. Well, what the heck is auto-inflammation? Uh, it is not a car caught on fire. Auto-inflammation is defined as systemic or organ-specific inflammation that's not attributable to something else. Again, a sort of category of exclusion. So if it's not infection, it's not cancer, and it's not autoantibodies or antigen-specific T cells, it's not antigen-specific autoimmunity, we call it auto-inflammation. In practice, what we mean are dysregulation of innate immunity. And, and the reason I put this pentagram up and, and I, I put this in all of my talks is to say that these categories are arbitrary and overlapping. So diseases of autoinflammation can have features of lymphoproliferation and immunodeficiency and autoimmunity. And so depending on how you define these things, these constructs are conceptually useful, but understanding the patients and diseases are complex. So these are the autoinflammatory diseases that we're gonna run through today. Okay, another bad joke uh, to an audience that can't laugh. Uh, obviously there are way, way, way too many of them. Um, so we're gonna quickly talk about one of the mechanisms that causes a number of these autoinflammatory diseases and that's called the inflammasome. Uh, the inflammasome is aptly named because it is a intracellular molecule that creates a lot of inflammation. Uh, it responds to different damage or danger signals and it forms this sort of wheel of death. And then it assembles very quickly and it, it catalyzes the conversion of these inactive inflammatory cytokines like IL-1 beta and IL-18 into their active forms. And so, you know, when you're blocking IL-1 in the hospital, you are blocking an output of inflammasome activity. And we do this all the time. IL-1 blockade has been sort of life-changing for a variety of different patients. So these are patients with NOMAD. Uh, they have an inflammasome mutation. So their inflammasome is hyperactive uh, because of a genetic mutation. And they have this bad rash. And they can have CNS inflammation. And they can have hearing loss due to inflammation. And these things get sort of magically better by blocking IL-1. And this is really the observation that kind of hooked me on immunology. I was a, a med student at the time and lucky enough to be sort of part of this group back in 05. Now, if you go back to our little table, and again, this is you know merely here for illustrative purposes, none of these auto-inflammatory diseases, and there are now you know dozens, maybe close to 100, are really sepsis or hyperinflammation diseases. So the most severe hyperinflammation phenotype is not really part of the auto-inflammation phenotype. And so to say that another way, auto-inflammation is not sufficient for systemic inflammatory response or hyperinflammation or cytokine storm, depending on what you want to say. So while these patients have tons of inflammation, they are not in our ICUs. So what about our patient? Well, she didn't have any identified mutations in known auto-inflammatory diseases. And this is all the treatment that we sort of gave her. And it's, you know, it's all the things. Um, this is sort of the, the period where she sort of presented and had really severe, you know, ICU level cytokine storm. Uh, each of these peaks is sort of a pulse of steroids. Uh, this is anakinra up to 10 milligrams per kilo per day, uh, cyclosporin, uh, um, canakinumab, another IL-1 blocker, uh, a TNF blocker at really sort of stratospheric doses, uh, and even an integrin blocker called vitalizumab because of her GI disease. And really, none of this touched her disease. But genetically, we, we through a research pipeline, discovered that she had a gain-of-function mutation in a different inflammasome called NLRC4. Uh, her mutation was actually here, this V341A. Um, 
But we now know that there's a bunch of different mutations in NLRC4 that seem to cluster around this nucleotide binding part. And they also result in increased inflammasome activity. Now, these other inflammasome diseases get better with blocking IL-1. Why didn't our patient get better with blocking IL-1? What makes NLRC4 different from these other inflammasome diseases? And so this is where, you know, our, again, our patients had something to teach us. And what they were teaching us was that the other inflammasome cytokine is what we should be paying attention to. Uh, and the other one is IL-18. Um, so these are controls. These are all the different other auto-inflammatory inflammasome diseases. And their IL-18 levels are certainly not normal, but they're not particularly high. And then this is a couple NLRC4 patients at a variety of different time points. And this is a log scale. So they are just stratospherically elevated every day of their lives. Uh, this, this dot is, uh, well, a couple of these dots are our patient. Now, elevated IL-18 is, is not just in NLRC4. In fact, we had known for a little while that we also saw this in some of our rheumatology patients that had what we had been calling macrophage activation syndrome. Um, and so this is systemic GIA patients who are at risk for MAS. These are the systemic GIA patients with MAS, and here's our NLRC4 patients. And this is a sort of laundry list of, of tons of different uh, auto-inflammatory and hyper-inflammatory diseases. You know, a few of them could be quite high temporally. Um, this is actually malignancy-associated uh, HLH, uh, and this is a, another immune dysregulation disease. But by and large, nowhere near the levels that we see uh, in what we had been calling MAS, what we still call MAS. So how can she tolerate so much IL-18? Um, she wasn't born with inflammation. It was, you know, at, at a couple months of age that she showed up. Well, we think that part of that is because IL-18 is normally, in all of us sitting here today, strongly sequestered by an inhibitor called IL-18 binding protein. So lots and lots of different kinds of cells can make IL-18 binding protein, and it binds really tightly to IL-18, such that pretty much all the IL-18 that gets made, either by macrophages or epithelial cells, when it gets into circulation, gets blocked up by IL-18 binding protein, and so it never really gets seen by the receptor. Now, if you're acting really locally, maybe that's able to, to see the receptor. And we think that this is uh, important maybe in lymph nodes or in some of these mucosal organs that are making a lot of IL-18, uh, but it's act, acting in, in, you may recall the terms, autocrine or paracrine ways, you know, acting really locally where binding protein may not be as important. But if you've got free IL-18, if you're making so much IL-18, that you overwhelm the binding protein sort of buffer reservoir, you, you develop, you know, this free IL-18 that, that we, we uh, set up an assay to try and measure. And now when you have free systemic IL-18, well, that's free to bind, you know, at any IL-18 receptor that's around. And the cells that can hear IL-18 are the cells that we think about in, you know, hyperinflammation. They're T cells and they're NK cells and to a lesser degree neutrophils. And so we set about to measure IL-18 in, in um, collaboration with uh, uh, Chem Gebe in Geneva. And sure enough, really the only diseases where we find any free IL-18 are those diseases that are we had been calling MAS. And so this is all our systemic JA patients. These are NLRC4 patients. And then you see all these patients that were high for total. When you look at free, it's basically zero except for this one patient here. There's always one. And so, this paradigm of excess IL-18 potentially coming from genetic or, or complex sources 
has sort of expanded over time. There's a couple other diseases that we've brought into the fold that we know have excess IL-18, uh, one of them being XIP deficiency, at least in the context of HLH. Uh, XIP deficiency can do a bunch of other things as well. And then very recently, uh, we helped find that very specific mutations in a gene called CDC42 will result uh, in HLH and a really high level of uh, IL-18. Uh, I forgot to put this in here, but even babies who are born to mothers who have really high IL-18, uh, a few of those babies have developed hyperinflammation uh, in the sort of immediate newborn period. So it looks to be even transferable. So what? Okay, so we've measured a bunch of cytokines, but we still have a sick baby. And so, you know, we had tried all of these things. Her ferritin just sort of went up and up and up and up and up. Uh, she's still not eating at all. So we got compassionate use to use a recombinant IL-18 binding protein. Uh, and again, this is an N of one experience, um, but within 12 days she was eating again, her ferritin's improved and CRP's improved and we stopped all the other medicines and she's now, oh gosh, it's actually more like four years now uh, out from this and doing great. And was really the genesis of a clinical trial that's ongoing using this drug in NLRC4 and XIP diseases. Now, we've talked about two potential mechanisms of cytokine storm, one being impaired cytotoxicity, which the paradigm being if you lack perforin, and the other being excess IL-18, which we see either because of an inflammasome disease or in our system HIA patients. And so what would happen if we cross the streams, if you have both of these present in, in one patient? Um, and so, you know, we can't do this uh, experimentally in humans. So, so uh, part of my lab is, uh, this is, I swear, the only mouse slide I will show. But we combine perforin deficiency with excess IL-18, this is IL-18 transgenic, in these mice that are perforin knockout transgenic. And they get a spontaneous hyperinflammatory phenotype. So this is just sort of their survival over, over days of life. Uh, this is just their weight compared to sort of their litter mates. And what was also interesting was that this group here were actually perforin heterozygotes. Uh, there are certainly some in the audience today who are probably perforin heterozygotes. And perforin heterozygotes by themselves are perfectly normal. But when we combine that with excess IL-18, we saw sort of this intermediate phenotype. Uh, and so we saw this again when we looked at their cells and the amount of interferon gamma they produce. Uh, there's a lot of extra interferon gamma in these, uh, the T cells from these mice and not so much in just the perforin knockouts or just the IL-18 transgenics. And this is quantified here. So stepping back a little bit, we've talked about a few of the genetic associations with cytokine storm. Uh, and, and this is from a recent review um, where we tried to sort of catalog how these different genetic mutations might interact with each other. Because again, none of these are sort of operating in a vacuum. So, you know, the, 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 the sort of canonical hyperinflammatory diseases are these sort of familial HLH genes. So there's perforin and there's our other friends and they're cytotoxic diseases. And it turns out they're cytotoxic diseases that affect granules, not just in T cells, but also in neutrophils and melanocytes. So you have these very rare uh, uh, cytotoxic defects that also occur in people with neutrophil defects and with albinism, like Chediakagashi syndrome or Griselli syndrome. Uh, and then some very new uh, disorders like in DOC8 or NCKP1. Um, that also result in lymphocyte activation and also cause some primary immunodeficiency. So if this looks like a mess, it's because it is, because the mechanisms by which these things can contribute to cytokine storm 
are all are, are a bit jumbled together. Um, EBV is probably the pathogen most associated with hyperinflammation. And, and many of you have, have taken care of patients with EBV HLH. Uh, and over the years, there's been a whole bunch of genetic susceptibilities, some of them more in the realm of immunodeficiency, some really not so much immunodeficiency, but just sort of lymphocyte activation like SAP deficiency, and some that for whatever reason seem to have an EBV susceptibility, but are also kind of inflammasome diseases like XIP deficiency. So these are sort of one of the ways of trying to conceptualize all these disparate mutations that uh, contribute to cytokine storm. Now there are functional correlates of this. So even if the genetics are not back yet or not helpful, we can interrogate some of these things at the bedside and we do it all the time. So if you're just looking for immune activation and maybe specifically lymphocyte activation, you can send a ferritin and, and yes, I check a lot of ferritins and I get alerted every time our lab runs a ferritin over 700 because I don't want to miss anybody. Um, but the soluble IL-2 receptor is probably also a decent biomarker of lymphocyte activation. Um, you know, we obviously can assess for primary immunodeficiency in lots of different ways. And I don't need to tell this audience how to do that. Um, let me just, uh, oh, good. I still have thing in the chat, sorry. We obviously can look for EBV uh, at the DNA level. Uh, we can look for this SAP at the protein level. Um, we can look for XIP at the protein level. Um, we can look at per for perforant at the protein level. So we don't have to have genetics in order to interrogate some of these pathways. Likewise, we can look for degranulation problems, even if these genes here are not uh, affected. So perforin, those T cells uh, degranulate just fine. Um, but, but they lack perforin, so they don't work. In these defects, those cells can't degranulate. And so there's something called LAMP1 or CD107A mobilization that you know, your, your, your team can send if you're suspicious of these patients. And then of course we can measure ileitin. Sorry. All right. So uh, running on time, getting on to how might we sort of conceptually deal with management? Well. I try to think of, of three different sort of uh, vectors in each of these patients, especially when you don't know anything about them. So I try to think about what might be the trigger of this. Even in these patients who have perforin deficiency or NLRC4, they weren't born in hyperinflammation. Something happened to them, whether it was a viral infection or who knows what else. And there's some very well-characterized triggers. We talked about EBV, but other DNA viruses like CMV and HHV6, uh, certain intracellular bacteria, particularly Ehrlichia or tuberculosis. Uh, many of your ID folks will know what iris is, this immune reconstitution syndrome. So if you have TB and HIV and you treat the HIV, but not the TB, the immune system starts to react to TB and it looks just like HLH. Uh, and, and finally, the, the, um, the hemorrhagic viruses look a lot like HLH if you look at their ferritins and some of their other parameters. And, and again, I'm not gonna to get too far into it, but a whole bunch of immunotherapy, CD19 and CD22 CAR T cells. So these are where the T cells themselves are driving the cytokine storm because you've put them into a context where there's tons of antigen. Uh, and blinitumumab is something called a bispecific tumor engager that, that basically does the same thing. It results in just a massive amount of uh, T cell activation. And then of course, I think about susceptibility. Uh, we talked about all the different inborn errors of immunity, whether they're immunodeficiency or autoinflammation or other immune dysregulation. 
Of course, there's iatrogenic immunodeficiencies, our cancer patients whose immune systems certainly aren't normal, and our autoimmune patients whose immune systems might be wacky, uh, either because of their autoimmune disease or because of what we're doing to treat it. And then of course, the urgency with which you're gonna treat these patients really comes down to damage. Uh, if they're shocky, if, if they're having organ failures, that's gonna push you to move more quickly than you might otherwise uh, if they seem more stable. So, you know, putting this together and thinking about how can we assess for these different triggers and susceptibilities and damage, well, we can measure biomarkers of hyperinflammation sort of generally to get it our, our damage response. So we can measure ferritin, which is probably, you know, a macrophage uh, generated byproduct of both inflammation and sort of iron uptake. So it's possible that this process of hemophagocytosis is one of the things that's driving ferritin. We use CXCL9 to read out interferon gamma activity. So your T cells are making a lot of interferon gamma. For reasons I won't go into, interferon gamma is a pretty lousy biomarker. It's just not very high or very dynamic in peripheral blood. But CXCL9 uh, used to be called MIG or monokine induced by gamma. Uh, and is a pretty nice, not perfect, but, but quite dynamic uh, and quite sensitive marker of interferon gamma production. Likewise, neopterin is a small molecule that um, gets uh, uh, created when uh, interferon gamma is acting on macrophages. Uh, we don't send it quite as often, uh, but we do send it from the CNS. Um, the soluble IL-2 receptor. So the IL-2 receptor comes up on activated T cells. And so if you have activated T cells in the context of inflammation, some of these proteases will cleave it off and that will bump up your IL-2 levels. And then of course we can measure IL-18 probably coming from macrophages uh, in response to the inflammasome. So you can measure all of these things, you know, clinically right now and get a sense of where your patient is, both in terms of hyperinflammation and damage, and maybe get a sense of what's causing it. Now, you know, this, this idea of inflammatory support is a little bit controversial, but I think the data are accumulating that even if you're not sure what the trigger or the susceptibility are, there may be some things that we can do to support our patients. And I think that COVID has really helped us along quite a lot. Um, in pediatrics, we're not using it, but uh, on the adult side, every admitted patient with COVID-19 is getting dexamethasone or, or some other kind of corticosteroid. Now that was really controversial until they did the study and showed that this was saving lives. Um, now we may not wanna to jump to giving glucocorticoids right away because we might be concerned about malignancy. So certainly if you have CAR T cells, um, you don't wanna give steroids because you don't wanna suppress the CAR T cells ability to kill the uh, tumor. So you might give tocilizumab. Um, the data of IL-6 blockade, uh, tocilizumab in other types of cytokine storm is not as well established. Uh, we and others sort of willy-nilly use this IL-1 blocker anakinra. Uh, it's actually been studied in sepsis and shown to be quite safe. And maybe if you do a sub-analysis of those sepsis patients, the ones who are more hyper-inflammatory did a lot better on anakinra. And those sort of confirmatory trials in sepsis are ongoing. Um, of course, we use glucocorticoids quite a lot, but we do worry about uh, malignancy and also some hypertension. There's some new players uh, like emipalumab, which is an interferon gamma blocker, which is already approved for refractory HLH uh, and is in trials for MAS and a host of other things, including COVID-19. And this blocks interferon gamma directly and seems to do so pretty well. Uh, and then we have a whole host of 
small molecule inhibitors that block something called uh, Janus kinases or JAKs. Um, and this is gonna block a whole different bunch of uh, cytokine signaling, including interferon gamma signaling and IL-2 signaling. Um, and we're still learning how to use these in the context of cytokine storm. Uh, they probably are a little bit more immunosuppressive, but certainly there's some reports that have been quite effective. And then we have some sort of a little more uh, poorly understood mechanism uh, interventions like IVIG. Um, we're not exactly sure how it's helping our patients, but certainly in MISC and KD it is. Uh, and in which other patients might benefit, I think we're still unclear. Uh, our intensive care unit does a lot of plasmapheresis, you know, phoresing off the bad humors. Um, and, and hopefully there'll be some data to start supporting that practice uh, as, as time moves on. So th these are things that we can potentially do as we're trying to figure out what a patient has, or if, you know, despite our best efforts, we can't really learn much about the trigger or the susceptibility, we can still potentially fend off some of this damage. So a word about MISC in the context of how I think about this. Well, the trigger here is relatively simple. It's remote SARS-CoV-2 infection. Now, I think it's become pretty clear that this is not acute SARS-CoV-2 infection. In terms of susceptibility to SARS-CoV-2 or to in MISC, I'm going to ignore COVID. Um, you know, there's some, there's certainly a ton of genetic work going on right now. The only gene I know of that's been implicated here is SOX1, uh, which has also been associated with a bunch of other diseases. SOX1 is a gene that is a suppressor of cytokine signaling. Um, so if you have a defect in this, it sort of stands to reason you might have a hyperinflammatory phenotype. But this is, you know, really in, in just one MISC patient. And certainly there's others coming. Um, in terms of the flavor of MISC's inflammation, you know, they don't look like HLH or really MAS. Their IL-18s are minimally elevated, and we've certainly measured hundreds of, uh, of samples from, from these patients. Um, their ferritin levels are often high, but not 20,000. They might be 500 to 1,000. Their soluble IL-2 receptors are also, you know, not normal, but not super high. Um, we don't see yet any evidence of cytotoxic impairment, but maybe the genetics will tell us that. Um, and there's certainly a lot of hypotheses about whether this is an autoimmune response, but the data there is still forthcoming, and uh, I think that we'll need to stay tuned. But in terms of damage, I think we know quite a lot. Uh, these patients have shock, heart failure, vasculitis, coagulopathy, uh, certainly a lot of GI involvement, although maybe not a lot of long-term GI problems, and, and certainly many of them have some CNS issues. And of course, you know, we at least have been very fortunate that most all of our patients are turning around quite quickly with IVIG and steroids. Um, not very satisfying immunologically because these are so nonspecific, but uh, good to see that we're discharging our patients. So we give early steroids, uh, not necessarily always pulse doses unless they're looking quite sort of MASE or quite shocky. Uh, and then we're very careful with the IVIG uh, because we've had, you know, complications like press or other things, uh, fluid overload. So you just want to be careful uh, how quickly you give it. Okay, so um, last slide of synthesis. So there are multiple highways to this, this hellscape of cytokine storm, um, you know, and they're interacting, right? So you can have a truckload of IL-18 and a cytotoxic defect, and that might get you there. Uh, you know, you can have a CAR T-cell defect, uh, a CAR T cell infusion and maybe a viral infection, and that would be enough. Um, 
you know, we don't know what other susceptibilities lurk that, that might interact with all these different kinds of infections. Um, but we do know that there's some commonalities to this final phenotype. And as we're working out the contributors, we can begin to start to interrogate them and, and to target some of these uh, damage associated pathways. So, you know, I will thank you all for your attention. I always show this slide. This is one of my uh, favorite uh, sort of attribution slides. Uh, there's too many, you know, people in this field to thank, but I certainly have been sitting on their shoulders. And so this is from a very old cathedral where it's sort of some of the New Testament apostles sitting on, old, on the shoulders of Old Testament um, prophets. Uh, and, and this is maybe the earliest visual recording of sitting on the shoulders of giants. So I will thank you all for your attention. Um, I will announce that uh, I've been very, very happy and, and uh, in Pittsburgh, but uh, largely for personal reasons, I will be moving myself, my family and my lab to Children's Hospital Philadelphia effective April 1st. Um, and I will thank all the people that did all the hard work, uh, not always with axes in their hands uh, and some of my funding sources. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Scott, that was a fantastic, presentation and very timely uh, for for all of us for you know especially because of the of the inflammatory syndrome that has followed COVID-19 um, and and so I look forward to connecting with you at, the, at, at even in a different venue uh, we were recently awarded a a, a grant to study uh, the inflammatory syndrome in children and trying to look for biomarkers so this is very helpful so I look look looking forward to connecting with you personally uh, later hopefully today or tomorrow so uh, we we have a, a couple of questions and uh, Barbara also will be uh, uh, answering any questions you may have on a from a practical level for patients that may be seen from one of our infectious disease colleagues dr. Cohen Abo uh, says extraordinary presentation. Uh, the, the the question uh, what, what he's asking is there a way that that um, the the field can get organized and actually come up with with names that are less confusing in terms of the diagnosis? I mean, how do, how can we handle uh, the, this variety of highway of names for inflammatory syndromes? Uh, do you have any inkling on um, how to do that? Uh, by getting better at herding cats. Um, no, this is actually. Uh, we have a, a funded effort right now to try to address right this, um, where we we are in the, in the middle of it, trying to come to a consensus on what the nomenclature should be. I don't know that we'll ever get there for what cytokine storm is. Some people really detest the term because it's so broad. Um, <clears throat> I, I kind of like it because it's so broad as long as we don't sort of imbue it with too much meaning. Um, but this morass of, you know, uh, MAS and HLH and sepsis and Sears and, um, you know, we're, we're working on it. It's, it's, it's a, it's a consensus-based process that needs to include heme oncologists and intensivists and rheumatologists and, and adults and pediatrics. Um, but the recognition of the need is there, um, and we're working on it. It's just... Everyone agrees there should be a unified term, just nobody agrees on what it should be. I, I, so there you go, Dr. Koenaba, that's the answer for you. <laughs> um, any comments on that, Barb, that you can? Yeah. Nope, I, I would agree. Um, I think often in rheumatology, we're, we struggle with consensus about names, and that does tend to be a longstanding struggle. <laughs> 
so. Uh, from uh, uh, the chief of uh, oncologist, oncology, Dr. Lyle, uh, talk now that we have more molecular biomarkers, do you think it's time to start redefining these hyperinflammation diseases based on molecular profiling, which would probably help select more specific therapies? Kind of similar question. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I was involved recently with, um, there was a new genetic disease that, that the, the, the NIH-funded OMIM had called FHL6. Um, and, and we in the Histocyte Society sort of got together and said, well, you know, no, we really want to restrict the term familial HLH to defects that affect cytotoxicity. And so, you know, the move for a sort of more mechanism-based nomenclature for all of these, I, I think, is useful. I think that, you know, I personally would be in favor of, you know, equating the term macrophage activation syndrome to a certain extent with IL-18, simply because the association seems to be so, you know, one-to-one. -one. Um, and, and we've seen this a little bit, such that the hyperinflammation of XIP and in, in the CDC42 patients has been called sort of more MAS-like because we think there's such an important contribution of IL-18. Um, but, um, I think that there's also the concern that we there, there's dozens of different mechanisms that we don't really understand very well, and what are we going to call those diseases in the interim? Um, but you know, I, I think in all diseases, especially, yeah, you're absolutely right. We want to be moving towards a more mechanism-based nomenclature, and and maybe the first step of that is just using the existing nomenclature, but restricting it to certain mechanisms that we think we understand pretty well. Thank you. From uh, one of our cardiologists, Dr. Heller, has our recent experience with Missy taught us anything about uh, anything new about Kawasaki disease, cause treatment? Um, I think it's reinforced that uh, viral triggers are an important <laughs> source of this. Um, you know, th there have been reports of Kawasaki outbreaks specifically associated with coronavirus infections in the past, so this is not um, unfounded. Um, you know, I don't want to be negative about it, but the, the data that has emerged from MISC so far, which has really been through some pretty heroic efforts out of uh, um, Dusan Bogonovic in, uh, in, in, in Manhattan and uh, Peter Broden at the Karolinska in Sweden and uh, Pui Lee in Boston and, and uh, a large group at CHOP. You know, I think that they're, they're, they're starting to get around this. I haven't seen anything that makes me think that MISC is different than, you know, uh, Kawasaki shock. Um, we're hoping that some of the more deep, I, I think everybody thinks that this is an adaptive immune response because it takes four to six weeks from the initial insult before these patients get sick. Now, whether it's a molecular mimicry thing, whether it's an autoantibody thing, I don't think most people think this is autoantibodies, but who knows. Um, I don't think any of the data have really pointed that out. Um, it'll be quite clear, you know, what we do learn about MISC, either genetic susceptibility or, or, or sort of mechanistic ties is going to be important for how we understand Kawasaki. Um, but so far, I think it's mostly confirmed that this is in the wheelhouse of, of Kawasaki, but not really told us, okay, then what is Kawasaki? I don't think that, I haven't seen anything to say, oh, well, the, the superantigen hypothesis is correct, or you know the 
the um, uh, allergens traveling from China into Japan are, are, are what's driving all of this. I haven't seen any of that yet, but certainly there's a ton of resources going into that, uh, both in local and, and national efforts. And it sounds like you all are involved in one, that's great. Yeah, from one of our intensivists, Dr. Schleida, in addition to Missy, other post-acute COVID sequelae, long COVID, have been postulated to have a hyperimmune or autoimmune mechanisms. Can you comment on that? Um, yeah, I think that there's been a lot made, um, you know, including by me, um, about the role of inflammation in COVID, um, both, you know, in, in the acute phase and, and in some of these patients that suffer, you know, longer circumstances. I think that the vascular inflammation is sort of conspicuous, um, you know, uh, at least in acute COVID, the, the uh, character of their lung inflammation suggests that it's, it's actually maybe more vascular than it is, you know, intrinsic to the lung or the alveoli, um, you know, just based on, on some of the oxygenation and perfusion observations that uh, what our intensivists have been telling me and observing. Uh, and certainly people have seen this phenomenon of COVID toes. And then of course, we've got these sort of MISC Kawasaki-like, and of course, Kawasaki is a vasculitis. So the, the predisposition for this in, in the blood vessels, I think, uh, is uh, a hypothesis that has, is leading a lot of uh, interesting studies. Um, the mouse models are, are being worked on. They're not great. But you know we can do all kinds of crazy things, and, and Akiko Iwasaki just down in Yale has made a mouse that only expresses the ACE2 receptor on endothelial cells and infected it, and, and they're looking at those phenotypes. Um, so certainly the immune response is involved. I think that the vascular response is probably uh, among the more paramount, um, but exactly how that works is, I think, to be determined. Uh, thanks. We we have a couple of more questions, but uh, we're running out of time. It's um, it's nine oh one, so we'll try to answer them um, uh, offline. Uh, but I'll, I'll I'll just end with one question from one of our pediatricians. From a general pediatrician standpoint, what if anything can we be looking for in our patients in the outpatient setting for clues that they might be at risk for hyperinflammation? Anything we're trying to look for? So that's a great question. Is there anything that you know could early early markers, clinical markers, I guess, or presenting markers that you would say you know pay attention? Um, so this is a little controversial. There are, uh, so, so Dr. Cron down in Alabama has, has sort of famously said, and I, I don't disagree. I'm just a little more careful that, you know, pretty much every child admitted to the hospital with a fever should get a ferret. Um, you know, I, I think that increasing the awareness that the ferritin, uh, if it's highly elevated, doesn't tell you necessarily that this patient is decompensating or, or requires specific, uh, you know, not everybody with a ferret needs antikinra or, or high dose steroids. But I think when you see a kid who has a really high ferritin and fever, uh, it maybe makes you wanna follow them a little bit more closely and look out for certain things like hepatitis and coagulopathy. Um, and so, you know, I think that that is in the acute phase, if you have a kid and you're trying to determine not just sick versus not sick. I think that, you know, pediatricians are excellent at that, but what's gonna happen in the next 24 hours? What's gonna happen in the next 72 hours? Um, I, I think that, you know, as some of these other sort of more complex biomarkers come online, uh, I think that we're still learning a little bit more about the ferritin. Certainly for admitted patients, there's decent data that the higher your ferritin is, regardless of what your diagnosis is, 
the less likely you are to leave the hospital. Um, and that, that's coming not just from our ICU, but a number of ICUs. So, you know, um, I think that, yeah, ferritin is probably a reasonable place to start with the caveat that it, it is one among a whole lot of pieces of information uh, and, and your gestalt is probably much more valuable. Uh, thank you, Scott. Uh, before I pass it on to Dr. Edelheit to close, uh, I, I want to remind people that on Friday we we, we have the, our series, the Ask the Experts, are back on, and and in fact we have uh, uh, one of your future colleagues at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, Dr. Paul Ofit, will be, who's a, a superstar in its own, uh, uh, certainly uh, in in terms of vaccine development, will be speaking about the development of the SARS-CoV vaccine. Uh, so tune in on Friday at uh, 8 o'clock in our traditional ways uh, for uh, John Shriver, who will be leading, and then Paul Ofid, who will give, uh, I'm sure, an outstanding presentation. So again, thank, thank you, you, Dr. Khanna, and I'm going to pass it back to Dr. Adelheit to close the session. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So thank you again, um, Dr. Khanna. You did an amazing job, um, as I said, to start. You were, you know, the ferritin king and um, definitely raised that bar incredibly high for our kickoff grand rounds of 2021. So thank you again so much. You've taught us so much and we're all very appreciative. So thank you. Thanks for the invitation. All right. Have a great day, everyone. Okay, I'm going to sign off then.